This is exactly right. I'm Sarah Iyer. And I'm Stephen Ray Morris. Hosts of the Purrcast. That's Purr with three R's. It's a podcast all about cats. We can't talk to cats, so we talk to people who know and love them. Each episode, we invite a fellow feline lover, comedians, celebrities, kitty caretakers, and animal artists, to name a few, and we gush with them about our favorite furry friends. Tune in to The Purrcast on Exactly Right Network for new episodes every Wednesday. Listen and subscribe to The Purrcast and all of Exactly Right's shows on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Right meow. by the solvability decreases we know this and um, you know in cold cases sometimes time is your friend you know the patience and maybe loyalties change and somebody's going to talk about it I'm your best friend today but 10 years from now I may hate you and I may want to tell the police what I know well with these cases you start looking at we're going on it's over 24 years you know so next year will be 25 years when does it become just we need to do something now Yamasee, South Carolina, the center of the low country in the sand hills below the fall line. Set across two counties, Buford and Hampton, it's a town that, per the 2000 census, had a population of just over 800. If you stay on I-95 and curve west, you'll pass that town by and make it to Hilton Head Island in under an hour. In an area full of resort destinations, Yamasee is easy to overlook. There are three exits off I-95 that will get you to Yamasee. The highway runs the length of the East Coast, winding all the way to Canada. In May of 1995, I-95 brought a murderer to town. Maybe traveling from as far south as Miami, or as far north as Maryland or New Jersey, up to 12 hours in either direction. Or maybe from another highway, from the west, though that's less likely. How long the murderer drove for, we don't know. But we do know that the victim, a woman, wasn't killed in Yamasee. The murderer was intent on putting distance between the crime and his own stomping grounds. He drove off the highway a little, finally pulling in on Cotton Hall Road. Cotton Hall is a state road that cuts through pine trees and farmland. There's a former plantation on Cotton Hall in Beaufort County. Its current real estate listing describes it as having been built in 1698 and is home to, quote, two of the finest oak avenues anywhere in the South. It's listed at 10.5 million. Now, as it was then, the road is mostly rural, not so well-traveled at night. The woman who was found face down in the ditch, clothing removed, except for a pair of underwear, her jewelry was gone. Lividity indicated that she'd been in a different position for several hours, at least. She was placed there, not dumped, not long before she was found. Hours, perhaps. Long enough, at least, for her killer to slip back onto the highway to disappear among the other vehicles heading up or down the East Coast. 
The woman now known as the Beaufort County Jane Doe was found at around 1.15 p.m. on May 24, 1995. According to the Post-Courier newspaper, her body was discovered by, quote, a state transportation department employee mowing grass. She was small, between 5'2 and 5'4, and she weighed about 118 pounds. She was probably in her late 20s or maybe her early 30s. As we mentioned at the top of the episode, she was mostly unclothed, except for a pair of underwear, Leonisa brand. Her ears were double-pierced, and she had freshly manicured nails. Autopsy photos show that she had curly hair, shoulder-length dyed red. Her eyes were brown. She'd had at least two surgeries, including a hysterectomy and a partial thyroidectomy. The Doe Network reports that, though she laid on her back for some time after death, she was found face down. In discussion with local media, a sheriff's lieutenant pointed out a third surgery. He indicated that she'd also had a cesarean section. She had a light brown complexion, and her body showed signs of physical trauma. Premortem bruises. Some may have even predated her attack. There were no drugs or alcohol in her system. She died by ligature strangulation. Our open records request returned detailed files. According to those reports, the murder weapon was not found at the scene, though officers did locate a nylon rope nearby, but it turned out to be road debris. They made a note of each item they found, though. Nothing that belonged to the victim was uncovered there. During autopsy, the coroner was able to get a full set of fingerprints and to develop a set of dental records. A long list of samples were taken and tested, and some material was preserved. In the mid-1990s, it was reported that there were no signs of sexual assault. We'll add a qualifier there. The report actually says that there's no presence of sperm detected. As the current investigator assigned to the case pointed out, that doesn't necessarily rule out assault. The victim's race was not definitively listed in early reports. As the Post-Courier reported in 1995, the coroner eventually listed her as white, possibly with, quote, some Hispanic or Asian heritage. There were no missing women in the area who matched this description. In the 2000 census, Beaufort County's population was recorded as majority white, with 24% of the population listed as African American, less than 1% Asian, and 6%, quote, Hispanic or Latino of any origin. Yamasi, the little town of 800 where she was found, had similar black and white populations. Asian and Latinx populations were both listed at under 1%. The numbers are similar in surrounding towns as well. As we discussed in Season 4's two-part coverage of the Jenkins County Jane Doe, these demographics are common in many, though not all, areas of the rural southeast. That doesn't necessarily preclude a local victim or a traveling one, but combined with the likelihood that she was in a vehicle for hours before she died and hours after, it's fair to assume that she was not in the local area when she died. 
It would be another decade before investigators would have access to DNA tests that could help them narrow down the Beaufort County Jane Doe's ethnic origins. And it was still longer before those tests were refined. In the late 1990s, then, she's often listed as race undetermined or white Hispanic or biracial or some combination of those terms. We drove down to Beaufort County to Hilton Head, where one of the two Buford Sheriff outposts is located, and there we spoke to a man named Major Bob Bromage. He's been with the Buford County Sheriff's Office since 1999, and now serves as the Public Information Officer and Head of the Cold Case Unit. You'll hear from Major Bromage throughout this two-part series. He's been in charge of the Buford County Jane Doe's case for the last 20 years. Nearly all of the records returned in our FOIA request involved Bromage. He's actively pursued every lead and every development in science ever since he got the case. The Beaufort County Sheriff's Office, the northern branch in Hilton Head, is a big, sprawling building. Lots of windows and doors. It looks a bit like an understated resort motel, which makes sense considering the setting. Hilton Head is a destination town that has a lot of design rules. Chain stores and restaurants have to observe monochromatic standards meant to blend in with the island's landscape. And the sheriff's office fits right in. We first met Bob Bromage in the lobby, and then he took us to his office in the rear of the building, where he juggles calls from reporters and cold case work. There's a huge file cabinet in one corner, stacked with extra-large binders, information on unsolved violent crime stretching back decades. As we sat down, we asked Major Bromage to tell us a little bit about his work with the Beaufort County Sheriff's Office. I'm originally from Connecticut. I was in the military in Savannah, Georgia for three years. I moved back to Connecticut. There were very few opportunities in law enforcement in 1988 uh, up until 1990. Um, applied for a few jobs with uh, state police organizations, but for 10,000 applicants, there was one opening. So it was it was incredibly difficult. So moved back down to Savannah, Georgia, and started going to school, and uh, found a job here at the Beaufort County Sheriff's Office in November 1990, and I've been here ever since. So my career, as it developed, I was a patrolman for a few years. I worked the midnight shift. Um, developed an interest in criminal investigations. Uh, would like to follow up cases and like to make arrests and bring uh, victims closure to their cases. So in 1992, was put on in as an OJT on the job detective, and we were detectives back there. They use the word investigator now, which kind of cracks me up. It's so clinical, but detective is such a more just a, a cooler way to say it. I, I love to handle detective. So in 1993, was promoted to detective. It was actually a rank with the Beaufort County Sheriff's Office back then. Uh, worked uh, uh, primarily uh, property and violent crimes. Uh, it was more of a general detective duty where you were assigned anything from forgeries to burglaries to sexual assaults to murders, whatever came up. I, I obviously didn't prefer forgeries and sitting at a desk and you know going through uh, collecting handwriting uh, exemplars for evaluation. I'd rather go out and get get the bad guys. So I continued as a detective, kind of developing a, a interest in asking a lot of questions of experts in the area of violent crime. So when Sheriff P.J. Tanner took office, uh, he developed a uh, 
a cold case initiative, which uh, I was put in charge of. I was a, a staff sergeant at the time. And, uh, of course, we started working these cold cases. Now, in 1999, the beginning of 1999, it was the old RFLP DNA method, which was you required a huge sample of either semen, blood, or whatever body fluid to be able to develop a DNA profile. And some of these cold cases, I mean, the evidence, fortunately, we held on to. Some departments may destroy evidence after a while, but if it involved a murder, we would hold on to it. So we're able to go back. And late in 1999, the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division went on with polymerase chain reaction, which is short tandem repeats that they still use today. Of course, it's uh, exponentially more sensitive now than it was back in 1999. But what a great tool. You know, a minute uh, amount of DNA, they'd be able to develop a profile through this through this new process. So really exciting for especially in cold cases. And looking at these cold cases, uh, the, the first thing you're looking for is w what are the advancements in forensic science that you can apply to these? Okay. We've got the polymerase chain reaction or the short tandem repeats we talked about that was uh, kind of introduced to forensic science in 1999 in these state and federal laboratories. But now you've got, moving forward, you've got now we've got CODIS. So they're going in um, and getting uh, known offenders that have been convicted. They're, you know, Back then, they were they were actually getting a tube of blood. Now we can do a buckle swab, which is uh, inside the mouth, to develop a profile. But they were going through and getting all the convicted offenders, and then creating this database, this national database, which is combined DNA index system or CODIS, like we talked about. Well, even in, in these cold cases, you look at it, and you say, okay, well, this person, based on their behavior, they should be in CODIS, but maybe they didn't commit a crime when CODIS was. Um, introduced and, and developed uh, as a new system. And we're finding that in, in, in several cases. Offender-based systems are always limited by their introduction. The systems can't be built backward, like familial DNA might be. This presents additional challenges when law enforcement or genealogists are trying to identify victims. Even with DNA on file, investigators can't follow the same paths that have closed so many cases of late. There's so many things available now. Now, um, in this 1995 case where we found an um, unidentified uh, woman uh, strangled on the side of the road, um, and she was also beaten, you know, we employed, of course, DNA technology to that. Her, her profile is in... Is in uh, the national database for unidentified uh, uh, murder victims and has not matched anybody. Uh, her fingerprints were obtained at autopsy and they were sent into uh, automatic fingerprint identification system, which is APHIS, and did not match anybody. We asked Major Bromage about CODIS's limitations, both then and now. If a close relative of hers ended up in CODIS for a violent crime, would it alert you to that? No. No. Mm -mm. It no. would just be... The UK, the UK is doing familial DNA, and they've been doing it for many years, which has proven very effective. I mean, you know, yeah, it gives you a lead, right? So if you got common alleles in DNA with, uh, with somebody in CODIS, it gives you somewhere to go, but they don't report it back. They don't report familial matches back, and that's where the value of these ancestry sites lies. That's the value. But again million, million, five people, 
I'd rather see a 10, 15, 20 million. Then you got a pretty good chance that it's going to match somebody. It's going to come back a familiar match, and it gives you gives you a kickstart to your investigation. But CODIS does not provide that. They can do less stringent searches, and, and I think that's a case by case where you're actually uh, you have to request it. And uh, I think that's they can do it. I don't think they do it very often. Um, if you have a local or a, a regional lab like we have, like the sheriff's office has, they, they're they're able to do things like that, where they're able to say, okay, well, statistically this. Cr- person could be related based on the similarities and the alleles, but we're not saying it is, but it gives you an investigative lead. So there's a value to having uh, smaller labs that service a, a region instead of an entire state where you're competing with every agency in the state for, you know, and they're already overworked. You know, they're already, there's backlogs and there's backlogs everywhere you go because it's just DNAs become the thing and, and uh, detective work. In the early days of his investigation of the case, Major Bromage had one other database that might help, VICAP. VICAP, or the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, has existed since 1985 and includes information on homicides, sexual assaults, kidnappings, missing and unidentified persons, cases where foul play is suspected. The system is wholly dependent on law enforcement entering case information into it. So not every case from every state or even county is listed, but it was and is still the most expansive law enforcement database cataloging violent crime. The importance of VICAP can't be overstated, even now, when there are other avenues of obtaining information. We talked to Major Bromage about the VICAP process and how the Buford County Jane Doe's case was processed. We entered this case into VICAP, the Violent uh, Criminal Apprehension Program that the FBI put together many, many years ago. And what it does is these analysts will look at cases and look for similarities, but they also engage the law enforcement agencies that submit these VICAP uh, forms, which is you're talking about the crime, how this person was found, you know, a lot of different variables. It's really, really interesting. It's a very long form that you fill out, but it goes into their database. And they have analysts that look at these things and say, well, this is similar to a case in South Carolina. Even though it's in New York, it's similar to a case in South Carolina. They'll connect those two agencies to talk. Very helpful. The Buford County Sheriff's Office kept a close watch on national missing persons reports, hoping that a possible match would surface. And in November of 2003, Major Bromage came across just such a case. In the police file, he writes that he was searching on the Doe Network, which at the time was one of the only public databases not run by the government for researching cold cases. If you've read Skeleton Crew, then you might be familiar with the Doe Network's most recognizable proponent, Todd Matthews, and his commitment to identifying the Jane Doe that was once called Tent Girl. After being founded in 1999 by a woman in Michigan and then further developed by a Swedish amateur sleuth, Todd joined and worked with other volunteers to assist families in closing cold cases. Back in 2003, Major Bromage was likely an early adopter of the website. He came across a missing North Carolina woman, quote, who was observed to have similar facial features, end quote, to the Buford County Jane Doe. That woman's name was Sybil Warren. Sybil had been missing since October of 1991, 
At that time, she was working the night shift at a number of different motels and usually at the front desk. The Q Center for Missing Persons reports that Sybil, who was 24 at the time of her disappearance, lived with her boyfriend in Greensboro, North Carolina. According to Q, quote, Warren apparently had chosen to remain estranged from her family. Their last contact with her was via letter on October 23, 1986. Sybil is described as a black female, and pictures indicate that she had a light brown complexion. She was 5'5 and approximately 135 pounds. So perhaps a little young to be the Beaufort County Doe, but a somewhat close physical match. There is very little available on Sybil Warren's case. Maybe because she was estranged from her family. The only substantial information is on missing person databases, and we assume those have been fleshed out from police files. We can't find any details as to who reported Sybil missing or how long it took. There seems to be some indication that law enforcement thought she could have voluntarily gone missing, at least at first. But she's now listed as endangered missing. There's only one other point of note. The Doe Network reports that a trucker claims to have seen Sybil in Virginia in 1995. The trucker knew her and said, quote, Warren acted as if she did not know him. He also stated that she was wearing some type of work uniform and was accompanied by an unidentified male, end quote. The Charlie Project lists a few possible names for that unidentified male, but the sources for that information are no longer available. Major Bromage made contact with Sybil's mother, Sylvia, and obtained samples to run against the Beaufort County Jane Doe. He had his results in January of 2004. There wasn't a match. Let's jump forward a bit to 2007, 12 years after the Beaufort County Jane Doe was found on Cotton Hall Road and eight years after Major Bromage took on her case. Though forensic sketches of the Beaufort County Doe had been completed in 2000, there hadn't been any tips based on their dissemination. So, in 2007, Major Bromage arranged to have the victim's autopsy photos edited to create a photographic forensic model. The victim's features, but with her eyes open rather than closed. The model presented a subtly different face than the earlier drawings had. Smaller features for one, and a more youthful look, but also had the advantage of serving the role of a traditional photograph. That same year, there finally came some information regarding the Beaufort County Jane Doe. Bob Bromage had hoped that advancements in DNA testing might help him find out more about the victim. In 2007, there weren't the kind of public repositories of familial DNA that we're now accustomed to, like the one used in the case of the Golden State Killer or by the DNA Doe Project. But there had been major scientific developments since the victim's information had first been entered into CODIS. Major Bromage spoke with us about his work to identify the Beaufort County Jane Doe based on ethnicity and what he did with the information that he found. We feel strongly she came from another country, but to talk about DNA, how do you determine where she may be from in the world? Because, I mean, she she looks uh, Latina, 
And what we did in 2007, did a little research. Hey, biogeographical DNA. So employed that technology. Um, and it identified she may be from a Caribbean country. She may be from South America. And that's what, because they have a database of people that uh, provide their profiles. And they take these common, they call them SNPs. Don't ask me exactly what a SNP is, but it's a lot more intensive than the polymerase chain reaction. I mean, it's so many different areas they look at to try to um, determine where where's the commonality, where are we see in this DNA the most. Is it South America? Is it is it the Caribbean? Is it uh, is it Africa? Is it uh, European? So when you look at that, that was very helpful in saying, okay, let's let's focus our efforts. And what you're looking to do is focus your efforts so you're not wasting your time and you're not spending your wheels. So we were able to do that back in 2007 when technology was kind of new. It was a private company, uh, just as, as if Parabon is now. Uh, this, this company uh, made themselves available to law enforcement. They didn't have the database where they're trying to match up familial DNA like they are now with like Parabon and these other like companies. But it was very helpful in at least saying, okay, we could focus our efforts on uh, trying to identify her in probably Central South America, the Caribbean, uh, you know, Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico. And that's what we've tried to do. The company that did the 2007 testing is no longer in business. And there's not a lot of genetic material left from the Beaufort County Jane Doe. So the little that is there might be completely consumed in a new test. The results Bromage received in 2007 were enough to narrow the field at least by a bit. Combined with the new forensic art, he had a more complete profile to circulate. The Beaufort County Jane Doe was likely a resident of the United States, but she may have had ties to another country or countries. If she had her surgeries outside the United States, they would have taken place in a country with excellent medical care. That would narrow things down a bit, as would the specific combination of surgeries. So there might have been friends, family, former co-worker, schoolmates, any number of people who would have recognized her face or that combination of scars, even if they didn't know she was missing, if her life had taken her to another country and maybe outside of regular contact. Another important piece of the puzzle. The Beaufort County Jane Doe's ties to a Spanish-speaking country or countries is reinforced by the evidence found with her body. The single piece of clothing she wore, her underwear, Leonisa brand. Our research indicates that Leonisa, a Colombian brand, wasn't widely available in the U.S. at the time the Beaufort County Doe died. However, Leonisa was sold throughout Central and South America. And we don't have verification, but... Based on some sales literature, we believe the brand was probably available in Mexico as well. We reached out to the company to verify that, but received no response. A friend of the fall line, whose family lives in Colombia, spoke to her relatives about their familiarity with the brand. One relative told her that the underwear was often sold by small, independent sales associates, like Tupperware and that women in more rural areas might be more likely to make purchases in that manner versus at a store. According to a Spanish-language ad celebrating the company's 60th anniversary, the brand was originally called Leona or Lioness. That name had to be changed because of a copyright complaint. When we arrived in Hilton Head and mentioned Leonisa, 
Bob Bromage was extremely familiar with its background. He had a thick folder of his own research on the brand. Mind you, it had been put together at a time when research took dozens of phone calls and not a few mouse clicks. When you combine her underwear with the other factors, the field narrows yet again. And there is more. It's worth noting that, based on photos and genetic evidence, the Beaufort County Jane Doe is likely Afro-Latina. The 2007 DNA testing bears that out. Though the forensic genealogists we consulted did caution that those early tests were not wholly accurate. The test results in the police file list her as, quote, 20% sub-Saharan African, with a confidence interval range of 12 to 28%. We don't know if she would have personally self-identified as Afro-Latina, and we won't assume. And it's also worth pointing out that there are a number of countries in Latin America where there are distinct Afro-Caribbean populations who are not Spanish-speaking. Still, for the purposes of beginning identification, this information could be relevant, both within the United States and beyond its borders. Pew Research Center offers statistics on Afro-Latinx populations in the United States. Quote, those who identify as Afro-Latino are more concentrated on the East Coast and in the South than other Latinos. That is, 65% of Afro-Latinos live in those regions versus 48% of other Latinos, end quote. And outside of the U.S., people with African ancestry live throughout Latin America. Official numbers are not necessarily reflective of that. For instance, there are Latin American Caribbean countries with Afro-ethnic populations, Cuba, the Dominican Republic, Haiti, Puerto Rico. There are also self-identified Afro-Caribbeans living in other parts of Latin America. And per Koch, that's largely because of the Jamaican diaspora. And there are significant Afro-ethnic populations living outside of the Caribbean part of Latin America, too. Numbers can be hard to come by, and many scholars feel that, in particular, Afro-Latinx populations have been underestimated. There are reasons for that. Historically, there have been limited means of self-identification on official census counts. For instance, according to Pew Research, it was only in 2015 that Mexico allowed, quote, people to identify as Black or Afro-Mexican through a new question on its mid-decade survey. 1.2 million people did so. An essay published in Harvard's Revista titled Afro-Latin America by the Numbers reports that in 1978, quote, only two countries in the region, Brazil and Cuba, were gathering and publishing census data on their African descent populations. Every other country had either removed questions on African ancestry from the census or, in some cases, had never included any. The author of that essay, George Reed Andrews, offers much more detail on how census processes in Latin America have changed, more than we can go into here. We suggest you read his work. There's a link on our website, Works Cited. But 
One particularly important point he makes is that it's only been since the 1990s that countries have slowly begun to look at counting Afro-Latinx populations, that the language of the census questions, just like that in the U.S., can fail to capture racial identity. For instance, Andrew writes that, quote, Colombian activists charge that by failing to include commonly used racial labels of Moreno as a possible response. Colombia's 2005 census substantially undercounted the nation's black and brown population. Okay, so you're asking, what does this mean for the Beaufort County Jane Doe? Simply put, it gives us an idea of where to look especially because evolving concepts of population, especially in countries that Andrew called, quote, majority Afro-descendant, might narrow the search for possible relatives. And perhaps it's most likely that those relatives would be from a country where Leonisa underwear was widely available in the late 80s and early 1990s. So that would be largely the Central and South American portions of Latin America. If the Beaufort County Jane Doe had her surgeries outside of the United States, we can use that information to narrow the scope. She was more likely to have lived in a country with accessible and excellent health care. In the late 80s and early 90s, the most likely candidates were Chile, Cuba, Colombia, and Costa Rica. In our opinion, looking at all of that information, which is research, but certainly not expert, we end up with one country that best matches all of the limiters, Colombia. That doesn't mean that her immediate family necessarily lives in Colombia now, but in a Doe case, geo-targeting identification efforts can be crucial. Departments have limited budgets and they need a place to start. Major Bob Bromage agrees. After the 2007 DNA results, Bromage and the Beaufort County Sheriff's Office arranged for an ad campaign to raise the profile of the Beaufort County Jane Doe's case. He was able to combine all the information they'd gathered, including new forensic photos, into a profile substantial enough to serve as a new segment. This in and of itself is unusual. We've not yet covered a doe who got so much individual attention from law enforcement. But Major Bromage's belief was that Spanish-language television would be the best way to share her forensic reconstructions, her DNA profile, and the details of her case. Not something he would capture through local news spots or the occasional mention in South Carolina newspapers. So Major Bromage reached out to Univision's Premier Impacto, a topics-based news program that, while based in the U.S., is broadcast all over Latin America. And, of course, American families with Latin American roots watch Univision, too, which means he'd also reach a wide U.S. audience who might not have otherwise seen a photo of the Beaufort County Jane Doe. At that point, Media coverage of her case, and it was very limited, was mostly in South Carolina. And in 2007, 
there were far fewer armchair detectives out there who were willing to scour missing person websites and make lists of people who needed more exposure. When we met with Bob Bromage, he discussed the Univision initiative and some of its results. We um, reached out to uh, Univision, and they developed an interest in this case because the most important thing we could do for this victim and her, and her family is identify her. And moving from that, we'll probably find that the suspect is somebody very close to her just based on, on you know, her, her cause of death, uh, ligature strangulation. Uh, don't leave her with anything that can identify her. Take, you know, she's got no earrings. She's got no jewelry. Uh, she's just in a pair of panties that were originally manufactured in Columbia, South America. How, how useful was that spotlight that you arranged on Premier Impacto? That was very important to get it out there. Now, they've got a, a huge uh, viewership, no question about that. Huge, enormous, um, and especially within, in the United States. It's probably bigger because, you know, anybody moving here from South America, the Caribbean, they're going to want to watch this because this is talking about their their countries and what's going on in the world. Major Bromage's campaign, it worked. For the first time, they had multiple tips come in regarding the Buford County Jane Doe. In the police file, there's a record submitted by a Spanish-speaking officer who was brought in to help field phone calls. And there were a number of those calls coming in from the United States and various parts of Latin America. Some of the missing persons mentioned in tips, they were excluded as matches based on photo evidence, which was compared to the Buford County Jane Doe. This was only possible because she had been found so soon after death. Unlike the Jenkins Doe from season four, the Buford County Jane Doe's features were easy to distinguish. Other tips, however, went a little further. One possible match came in as Josefina Novus, whose brother, who lived in New York, saw the broadcast and called in. The siblings were originally from the Dominican Republic, and Josefina's brother reported that she had disappeared sometime in the early 1990s. The Beaufort County Sheriff's Office eventually located Josefina's son, who told them that his mother hadn't gone missing in the Dominican Republic or the United States. She'd actually disappeared while in Italy. Josefina had traveled there in the early 1990s with an aunt and vanished during their stay. When Major Bromage received a picture of Josefina, the likeness to the Beaufort County Jane Doe was apparent, and it was enough to warrant further testing. I got a lead from Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic, um, which, again, given not to give advice, but make yourself available. Make yourself answer your emails, answer your phone calls. Don't put it off because, uh, you know, what I did at that point, okay, the, the family sent me some information. I looked at the, the missing person information of this uh, young lady. Uh, she disappeared in 1994 from Santa Domingo. I thought it was going to be a match. Uh, so what we did is I called the FBI and they got their legal attache uh, in the Dominican Republic to go by and see her family and obtain DNA swabs, buckle swabs, which were sent uh, to, uh, to me, which in turn I submitted to our, our forensic services laboratory here in Beaufort County, which we established, started doing casework in 2012. And when that um, DNA was uh, evaluated against our unidentified victim, it did not match. So you talk about a disappointment. 
And that's, uh, again, you got, you're going to get door slammed on you. You just got to pick it up and say, okay, what can I do better? What can I do different to uh, illuminate this case so people are paying attention? Josefina was the strongest tip to come in from Premier Impacto's coverage of the case. And when that came up negative, the Buford County Sheriff's Office didn't have another lead to follow. Major Bromage had amassed a lot of information, though, including that Spanish-language coverage of the case, which was quite beneficial, but there were no more cases to which they could compare the Buford County Jane Doe. However, there had been one other development in the mid-2000s. A suspect had come forward. But more than that, he'd confessed to her murder and to the murders of other women along the I-95 corridor stretching down into Florida where clusters of unsolved homicides dotted the interstates. Major Bob Bromage knows all about the confessions of this supposed serial killer. After all, he had the chance to interview him in person. Next time on The Fall Line, we hear that convicted criminal story. Plus, we dig into other possible suspects, Major Bromage's theory on the crime and how a new initiative led by a Colombian journalist, might be the best chance yet for identifying the Beaufort County Jane Doe. We would like to thank all the listeners who have taken time to support our sponsors, leave us reviews, or support our show directly on Patreon or through PayPal. We could not do this without you. Special thanks go out to Angie Dodd. The Fall Line is created by Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove and is produced and mastered by Maura Curry. Our research assistants are Haley Gray, Kim Fritz, Brooke Floyd, Lexi Newhouse, and Jess Watford. Content advisors are Brandy C. Williams, Vic Kennedy, and Liv Fallon. Special content advisement by Professor Marcella Fuentes. Be sure to look out for Marcella's new novel, Malice, which will soon be complete, and from Nancy Riveras. As always, our theme music is by RJR. You can find our merch in the Exactly Right Podswag store. A portion of those merch proceeds are donated to support the work of the DNA Doe Project. We'll be back next week with part two in the series, then a two-part story on a Jane Doe case out of Cedartown, Georgia. We hope you'll join us then.